I like this place a lot. In all seriousness, we are a family. I am the 10th congregation. I'm the newest baby. And uh, the most hurting congregation probably is Flagstaff. And just know a lot of us are praying for you. We're sad. Um, even in the season where I'm doing all this exciting stuff, starting something new, the book of Ecclesiastes says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm doing both in this season, and I'm weeping a lot for you guys. And just what's going on at the end of just a terrible year, and now church is kind of shaky, and, but the, your leaders here are doing a great job. And I just want you to know that we're praying for you. We love you. I have prayer cards specifically for this place. So I love this place. I love coming up here. And I've never got to teach here. And now you get to hear my voice that Anthony's mom likes so much. So here's what we're doing. My wife had a, a good statement last night. It kind of stinks being married to a preacher, being the son of a preacher, which I have four kids, um, because everything you say is probably going to make it into a sermon at some point. So my wife said something. It's nothing embarrassing, but she's sitting by the fireplace at the place we're staying. And she says, I just, I just need some Jesus. And her point was, I'm going to listen to you preach tomorrow. I just want Jesus. Like, I like you. I married you. But I, I really, I, I particularly need Jesus in this season. And I feel like that's where we're all at. So I want to pray and just ask for that to happen, that, that we get Jesus in this moment through preaching of his word. So let's bow and pray together. Jesus, we need you. We confess that. We also confess that. Our self-sufficiency gets in our way more times than we like to realize. So as we all sit at the tail end of 2020, smack dab in the middle of Advent, help us to need you, to express our need, and to receive the help that you always promise to bring when we confess that we are helpless and needy and we don't have it all figured out. So, God, that's what I want in this moment. So be with us. Meet us through the preaching of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, I get to preach, like I said, just so you, if you have friends in North Phoenix, we are starting a church at the 51 in Cactus area. If that means anything to you, at the base of North Mountain, in between I-17 and 51, our first official uh, service is January 10th, twenty. 21. So if you have any friends in that area, send them my way. You can find my email on our website, nm.redemption.az. So make sure you uh, send people our way. So we get to do Advent. Christmas is my favorite thing in the world. When my wife was thinking about marrying me, one stipulation was, I love Christmas. I am the Clark Griswold fan of all fans. I'm a fanboy. That's my jam. I just want lights upon lights upon lights. Blow-ups are now a thing, which I love. I, need, I think we should have more blow-ups. I'm a little disappointed in Flagstaff. I, don't, I drove around here, and the lights, the light game was not as strong as I expected for being such a pretty city, so I don't know if I'll be moving up here, but I love Christmas. I love Christmas music. I was listening to a pentatonic song that kind of, it's a beautiful song, and it's kind of what Christmas is for most people. And it's Christmas has become kind of a junk drawer term for like a sweetsy, nostalgic, family-centric season. Pentatonic song says that it's a song called That's Christmas to Me. I see the children play outside like angels in the snow. I love it. While mommy and daddy share a kiss under the mistletoe. And we'll cherish all these simple things wherever we may be. Oh, why? Because that's Christmas to me. I was in Turkey two years ago. Turkey, the country, Istanbul. All Muslim, all secular. And they do Christmas. Some version. 
Christmas is everywhere. And Christmas is whatever you kind of want it to be. That's Christmas to me. I want it to be about family. I want it to be about eggnog. I want it to be about whatever it is. That's Christmas to me. And the series that you guys are doing, Welcoming the King, is trying to kind of combat that. No, Christmas is about welcoming the King. We welcomed him the first time. And now we're going to look forward to when we welcome him back as the king who's going to reign supreme when heaven and earth meet forever once again. But that's what this season is about. It's about welcoming the king. So that's what we're doing. Last week, uh, Anthony talked out of the book of Matthew. Jesus is from a messy family. I mean, all come from messy families. Raise your hand. All of us. This week, I'm doing Luke. I'm talking about the kingship of Jesus, welcoming the king, the son of David, the promised king of Israel. And then you're going to look at the other Gospels. And each week, here's all we're trying to do here at Redemption Flagstaff, is kind of zone in and see Jesus through all the Christmassy stuff. The Christmas stuff is good. I love it. I'm a preacher. I put lights up all day. But to see Jesus. Here's kind of an illustration I want to use. There's a door. We want to welcome the king. I want to help us open up the door a little bit more to allow Jesus in. Not in a salvation way but in an experienced way. Can we experience Jesus a little more in this season? And here's how we're going to do it today. I like to have points. I've got four points. I don't always like alliteration, but when I do, I love it. So I have some, it's like just a sweet joy I have as I'm preparing my sermon and I'm kind of, I'm not trying to get there, but I start to see it form and I'm like, this, this is happening. I've got two S's. If I switch this one word, I'm going to have three S's, and I've got a four-point sermon, so you guys get four S's in this sermon. Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to welcome the king more in his subversion. I'll unpack that a little more. We're going to welcome the king more in his story. We're going to welcome the king more in his singing, and we're going to welcome the king more in his sameness. That's what we're doing. Out of this Luke chapter 2. Story. So if you have your Bibles open, we just read, I want to read that chapter two again, the first seven verses together. The famous birth story of Jesus, if you've grown up in church or some sort of church tradition, this is something you've heard over and over and over again. But let's look at it one more time together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, to give birth. and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. How does Jesus enter the story? He doesn't enter above the story. Like I have a lot of Muslim friends from past jobs I've had. And their view of God is high and sovereign and he's in charge. But their version of God never comes down into the story. He stays up top. We also live in this very secular day where secularism is just rampant all over the place. And I'd say the problem with that is Jesus comes into the story under the story, like less important. Like everyone's version of Jesus is some like sub 
powerful, all-knowing version. Like I'm getting to that age, mid-30s, where I'm looking out and I'm seeing ministry partners bow out, meaning they're leaving the doctrine that they once held tight to. And most of them leave for this reason. They start to say, ah, my God would not be like that. Therefore, I have to bow out. Because the problem in their mind is God is not measuring up to their standard, which is a scary place to put yourself as the judge who gets to decide how God should be. But we got the Muslims who God's always up here. We got the liberals and the secular humanists who say, "Uh, humanity's here. God is going to fit into our view. But that's not what we get with Jesus. Jesus enters through the story. I love, as I read this and prepared, this was just beautiful. He enters through the story. Jesus, the son of David, enters into a world governed by people who think they're in charge. We got Caesar Augustus, most important person. We got a governor. What else does he He enters a story uh, where there's layers of leadership and control going on. He doesn't stay up. He doesn't go below. He enters right in the middle where there's all these layers of control. And here's what's just interesting. Who is the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Verse 1 says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And you trace it through these verses. And the reason why Jesus has to go to Bethlehem, because that's where his family lineage is from. So why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Who decided that? George W. Bush, former president. One time people were pushing on him on his decisions and he said, listen, I'm the decider. Who's the decider on how this story plays out? Caesar Augustus says, this is how this is going to happen. And that's exactly how it happened. So does that make Caesar in charge. Jeremiah is a prophet. He writes the book of Lamentations and he says this, who has spoken and it's come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. See, subversion means you are working in and through a current system, kind of taking over power from within the ranks. Caesar Augustus commands it. This is why this has to happen this way. Jeremiah says, but nothing happens without God being totally in charge of it. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Micah 5.2 says this about the future coming of Jesus. Micah 5.2. O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because Caesar said so, yes. But more importantly, because the decider, God, said so. Here's what's been really frustrating about 2020. I mean, among many things. Who's in charge? So I live in Maricopa County. I don't know how you roll in Coconino. But Maricopa County says one thing. You got to be four feet apart. And then Ducey says you got to be six feet apart. And then Trump says what he says. And then everyone is saying, and I just, who do I listen to? Who has jurisdiction in all this? Who's actually the one in charge? I don't think they know. As we read this story, in this simple little birth story that some of us, if we've been in church, have read a million times, let's just remember this. God is subversive. 
He doesn't stay above. He's never below. He's always working in and through the people who think they are in charge currently. That should bring us just an incredible amount of peace. Like, what does that mean? Who's in charge of this place? Biden, Trump, the Supreme Court, the Congress, the global powers, the European Union, the counties, the governors. With all these layers, who's in charge? Jeremiah says, whatever gets done on earth, it's because God has commanded it. So as we enter the story and as we enter Christmas and we want to make Christmas whatever it is, here's what Christmas is about. The king who comes into the story subversively. And that should bring us great hope as Christians. Because everywhere we look, we know that behind whatever's going on, Jesus is king. And he's in charge. No matter who's yelling, who's screaming the loudest, who has the most authority in the moment, Jesus is the king. This is what was promised to David. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And it was, and we see it in the birth of Bethlehem, this Christmas story that so many of us have heard so many times. Here's our next point. He is subversive, but he does not come out of left field. Meaning his entrance into the story was calculated. We have a great poet behind all of this. We have a great artist writing, um, painting this picture. We have a great author writing this story. It did not just come out of left field. So I want to read chapter, chapter 2, verse 8 through verse 12. And I want to see our next point here. Verse 8. This is where the shepherds kick in. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. Here's the next point. We welcome the king through his story. Through his story. I read a terrible blog the other day that just made me so depressed. It said, out in the world there exists 10,000 versions of you. I'm like, that's a provocative title. And he goes on to say, basically every human you ever interact with writes a narrative about you. And now you exist in their head as version whatever. How depressing that that's how life works, but that's just how it is. Like, who is Josh Watt? Anthony G knows me. My wife knows me. My kids know me. You all know me. Some of you are going to really like me. Some of you will be like, Anthony, if you ever bring that dude back, I'm out. Why? Because we're all writing these stories in our head as we interact with people. And that's just how humanity works. How does God himself want to be known because it's the same I, I i was having a quiet time probably a couple months ago and i just had this thought that jesus is the most misunderstood person in the universe no person in the universe gets more false narratives written about him than jesus so he gets it but if jesus was here What would he say? How do I want you to get to know me? He would say this. It'd be very simple. He'd say, in my story, period. 
get to know me in my story. Any Harry Potter fans in the room? Oh, so my wife's a big Harry Potter fan. I've yet to make it through a book or a movie, but I hear it's a great series, and I, I hear it's phenomenal. I know. You guys, like, see, I told you, that guy, I did not trust him as soon as he got up there. <laughs> Apparently, there's, like, hardcore Harry Potter fans, and there's theme parks, and there's, in Florida, there's a theme park. We have a friend who is the most diehard Harry Potter fan you can ever imagine. She grew up on, she was kind of the same age of Harry, whatever age he was, and she grew up on him, and she just devoured every book, every book. I love Harry Potter. And her parents took her to whatever it's called, Hogwartsville in Florida. I don't know, the wizardry, whatever. And she walks into Hogwarts for the first time, and she falls down on the ground and bawls her eyes out. Because this story that she had fallen in love with, she was now sitting in the place that she had fallen in love with through a book talking about fictional characters in a fictional place. And she is on the ground crying her eyes out. That is a beautiful story. One day I'll get around to reading Harry Potter, see if it was worth all the emotion. But Christianity is no different. One day we're going to fall before Jesus and cry and worship because everything we read about him in this book is true and even better than we could have imagined. So as we go to this Christmas birth story that we've heard so many times, we have to remember that there's a story behind this. And in this part of the story, Jesus shows up as a baby, but the people that hear about it first are shepherds. Why shepherds? You could make the point, well, they were kind of the lowly outcasts of society, and I think there's merit to that. But all throughout the Old Testament, here's what God wanted from his sub-leaders. You are to be the shepherds of the people of God Period. And when God's fury came out, it was towards leaders who were not being good shepherds. I want to read a passage out of Ezekiel 34. Here's what he's saying to the shepherds of the day, those who were supposed to be shepherding the people of God. Here's what he says. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophecy. He's telling this to Ezekiel against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, and the sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, or the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. You want to see God furious? Read the Old Testament as he's talking to people who are supposed to be the shepherds. So why does God show up to a bunch of shepherds in a field? Because he is going to rule. He is subversively entering the story as the final good shepherd. Because that's what we need. We are sheep gone astray. And we all need a shepherd. So the story, the birth story, is surrounded by shepherds. Why? To show us this is how God is going to rule you. And a line just jumped out to me the other day as I was studying this passage. Verse 8. Here's what it says about the shepherds who weren't expecting any of this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
Like, here's what some of us in this room need to know just in this season. Our shepherd is keeping watch even at night. When everyone else has gone to bed, when everyone else phoned it in. Like, one of the hardest parts about being a parent is bedtime. Because all I want is them to be asleep, and all they want is to do the exact opposite and annoy the living you-know-what out of me. There's nothing in me as a parent that is looking forward to that time to still parent and protect them. I need a break. I'm done. I'm out. God has never once had that. Night kicks in. Danger kicks in. He is on guard. Redemption Flagstaff goes through the hardest thing they've gone through. God is here. Why? Because shepherds watch even at night, especially at night. Like some of us just need to let that sit in. What does that mean? We don't have to worry about anything. And I know that's a big statement, and I'll forget it on my drive home. But that's what preaching's for, is to remind us of these things that we should hold dear in our heart. We have a shepherd who is watching at night. He's got this. Why show up to shepherds? Because Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep and is always watching. He is never weary. He is never tired. He never takes a nap. He is always on guard for us. That is beautiful news. So as we enter this Christmas season, we want to welcome the king. Remember that he's the good shepherd and he is watching us by night. Takes us to third point. We need to welcome the king and is singing. If you have your Bibles open still, look at verse 13. We're going to read verse 13 and 14. I love this. I preached this last year at Gateway, and I camped out on this passage. Verse 13 says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What happens when the king shows up? Song erupts. So I have four sons, and my wife's a beautiful singer, and she has a song for each of them. Our third-born Jude is a Christmas-ish baby, December 9th. His song is Silent Night. Silent Night. It's a great song. My main seminary professor hates that song. I'm like, how are you, a Christian? i got to spend eternity with you with such a terrible opinion. Why would such a godly man who knows way more than me, study way more than me, why would he hate, like he does not like Silent Night? He says it does not match reality what happened. As you read verse 13 and 14, nothing about that night was silent. The king has come. Glory to God on the highest, and the universe erupts in praise. That's his problem with it. Why? Because when the king shows up, we sing. Singing is a part of welcoming the king. We sing a lot. I read a book a few years ago called Reforesting Your Faith. You flex that people might like it. It's all about trees. I love trees. It's very, it's very flex I should buy it for you guys. I'll buy one and let you pass it around after COVID. Yeah. I'll buy an ebook that you can transfer. Here's his whole point. God marks almost every significant thing in his Bible with a tree. And you're like, ah, that's a big statement. Okay, well, you go read the Bible, and you come and then buy me coffee and prove me wrong. But his point is Genesis 1 and 2, the garden. There's trees. 
Okay, let's just skip to the end. Revelation 21, 22. Heaven meets earth. There's a garden city. At the center of the garden is a tree. And he says, if you trace everything that... The cross is a tree. Everything significant that God does through his word, a tree is there. And I would say the same about singing. Re-singing our faith. Singing is a part of our faith. It's the way God marks our faith. When the king shows up, we should sing. Singing is a way we get to welcome the king. I want to read a passage to you. Just let it encourage you. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What does that mean for us as we try to welcome the king? As we think about the king entering this door one day, the king returning back to this earth, just know he is a joyful, singing presence. My second-born Roman sings everything. The moment he wakes up, he's singing. He puts himself to sleep singing. He's in the bathroom for an hour. He's singing. Everything he does is song. And we serve a king that is not grumpy, that is not curmudgeon, that is not angry, that is not filled with hate and vitriol. He is singing. And when he shows up, people sing. Why? Because that's what kind of king we have. So as we welcome the king, we got to remember that we are a singing bunch. I think it's because... Just moments with Jesus are too big to just be captured in certain. Singing is a way to kind of capture a moment bigger than what we are in in the moment. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who gets to know his Bible. Paraphrase. The beginning of the song book of the Bible says, get to know your Bible. Psalm 150 says, sing your Bible. That's the progression of the Christian life. We get to know him through his word. We get to know him. And by the end, we are singing because we love him. Why? Because he is the singing king who sings over us with gladness. That's the king we get to invite into our lives, into our church, into our homes, into the city this Advent season. So what's the last point here? He is subversive. He does not come out of left field. He's straight through God's story. But here's the, here's the thing with rulers just in general. Does he get us? Like, how much can I actually connect with him? So this takes us to our last, verse 21. We get to welcome the king in his sameness. You're welcome for four S's, you'll remember. Verse 21, I just want to read it. It's a simple verse. And unpack it a little. At the end of eight days, so that's eight days of life on earth for baby Jesus. When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. He's subversive. Caesar Augustus says, this is how I want this to happen. And Jesus says, I know. I'm going to make it happen that way anyway. Shows up to shepherds. Why? Because the king is going to be the best shepherd we know. So he shows up and we get to know him in his story. And not only is it just shepherds doing their job, but there's people singing. Why? Because the king brings praise. The king sings over us. But then finally, I love how just simple and ordinary this ends with a baby doing the basic medical things that a baby is supposed to do for life here on this earth. The king of glory circumcised on the eighth day, figuring out how to breastfeed, figuring out just basic humanity. Does Jesus get me? I was a math teacher before as a pastor. I was in Texas. 
when Barack Obama first became president. And the class I was teaching was all African-American, and then I was the teacher. We took the day off his first inauguration to watch it, and I remember just sitting in that room crying. Terrence, I can picture. These kids are seeing somebody that's like me for the first time in their life, their parents' life, their grandparents' life, their great, 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 great. And it was just this worshipful moment, like, that's what Jesus is for us. There's no distance he wants to keep. He wants to be just like us in every way, except for our rebellion. He does not hold back. He's like us. There's a counselor that I love who says this about, he says it to parents as a rebuke, and he says it to other counselors as just a training. If you don't get me, you don't get to direct me. So I was a youth pastor. I was a math teacher and then a youth pastor for years and years. And here's kind of the problem in the teenagers. The first problem, A, is teenagers. The follow-up problem, B, is parents of teens forget to incarnate. Forget to get in the skin and the shoes and the awkwardness and the acne and the insecurity and all that's stinky about being a teenager and sit with them in that moment. And this counselor would say, if you don't get me, you don't get to direct me. And Jesus says, I get you. Why? Because I was circumcised on the eighth day. My mom struggled to figure out how to feed me. I watched my parents fight. I went through adolescence. Puberty was a beast. I have B.O. I don't like all the haircuts I get. He is fully human in every way except rebellion. So we sometimes just need to remember that. As we welcome the king this season, he is not a distant king that we're going to watch from afar as he rides in on some horse. He is going to be the greatest parent any of us have ever experienced who sits with us in all our awkwardness and says, I get it. Hebrews says this about him. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who one who in every respect has been tempted as we, but without sin. What's this Christmas to me? This Christmas. It's about eggnog. Yeah. It's about Christmas trees. Yeah. Is it about Christmas lights on your house? Yeah. If you live in the valley and your flag, I don't know what you guys do, but it's about the king who enters through the story. He comes subversively into this story. Into 2020, he is subversively in charge of everything that has happened. And he enters through a story. If you want to get to know him, you have to get to know him through this. There is no shortcut. And if you want to get to know him, some of you just need to remind yourself that singing is a part of that. Songs of lament, Songs of confession, songs of praise. But Psalm, the book of Psalms ends with this. Praise him, all ye. All of creation will praise him. Singing is a way we get to welcome the king this Christmas season. And finally, do not forget this. He is the same as us. He is a Middle Eastern man who lived a life 2,000 years ago so that he could relate to us non-Middle Eastern people here in northern Arizona in all of our humanity and clunkiness and insecurity and all that comes with being a human. So we can go to him in prayer and we say, Jesus, I'm scared. But you get that because you've lived here. 
Jesus, my parents. But you get that. You had parents. Jesus, 20, 20, come on. But you get that. You've lived here. You know that. So here's what I want. I'm just to give a space just to respond. Maybe one of those stood out most. Maybe it's his subversiveness, the fact that he's actually in charge. Like really in charge, like 100% in charge. Some of you need to grab hold of that with job loss or whatever it may be going, going on in your life. Some of you grab hold of him on his story, the fact that he's a shepherd and that he is watching over us by night. Some of you just need to sit and maybe sing. 2020 has been a lot of things. Joyful songs probably is not at the top of that list. Maybe you need to sing and just lift your heart to a place it's not at. And some of you maybe just need to sit and remind yourself that Jesus is not distant. By his spirit, he is here in this moment. And more than that, he knows what it's like to be us. So I'm going to pray for us and just give us a moment to kind of sit with our thoughts. But let me pray over us this morning. Jesus, thank you for these gospel stories that all give us a different angle of the greatest thing that this earth has ever received, God in the flesh. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus of Bethlehem. And yet God welcoming you in is not a given. There's a posture to our heart. There's a way our actions can help or hurt that. There's a way our current fears and insecurities are playing into this. So God, I just pray for this room right now with a variety of stories and narratives and circumstances going on. I pray that you, by your spirit, would strategically, surgically land where you need to land to help the people here of Redemption Flagstaff welcome you in this Christmas season. That it wouldn't be a, a vague reality, but they would actually experience more of you through your preached word, through the gathering of your saints here in this church and through this Advent season. So God, thank you. Thank you for this church. I pray that you bless them. I pray that you be with them. I pray that you give them an extra amount of your grace in your presence, Lord. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. Amen.